1: good afternoon and welcome it is the morning after the provincial budget and we're going to drill down on what all those big numbers are going to mean in your life this budget was all about the pandemic and brampton is one of the area's hardest hit so i'd like to get right to it welcome mayor patrick brown hi mayor brown
2: well, it'd be great to be on the show again
1: Thank you for taking the time. So uh, let's get at it. Um, a few days ago, there was uh, a published report that Brampton was getting the hospital that you have been asking for for a very long time. And in the budget, we found out it's it's not quite that.
2: Well, I would disagree with that. Um, I, I think and it, it, it's reasonable for opposition parties to try to Criticize things, Uh, but what Brampton was hoping for was a commitment for a second hospital. We got that in the budget. The budget committed to Phase 2 of Peel Memorial. As you know, the old Peel Memorial was decommissioned um, a long time ago, and so that building, that former decommissioned hospital, is being turned into a full-fledged hospital. Phase 2 includes hundreds of beds. It includes uh, an emergency department. It includes 24-7 Hospital operations. So it's uh, a home run for our community. We're ecstatic about it. Um, And uh, it it was desperately needed. You know, before the pandemic, we were, um, our Branson Civic was at 100% capacity. Um, 100% capacity before the very first COVID case.
1: Right. But uh, you're getting a new hospital wing as opposed to. No.
2: So um, that's where some people have made confusion. Uh, So the William Ostler Health System includes. Uh, hospitals in Etobicoke and Brampton. So there's Brampton uh, Civic and Etobicoke General, and so these are wings of the OSLER Health Network. Um, and so Peel Memorial, which is in downtown Brampton, uh, is currently a decommissioned hospital uh, site right now. It's, it's an urgent care clinic. If you no ambulances go there. Um, if, if you go at night, it's closed. Um, they're taking that um, that building. We we've, we've got a vacant land next to it, and we're we're, we're turning into a full-fledged Hospital. So this means hundreds of new hospital beds. That means an emergency department. It turns a decommissioned hospital into um, a full-fledged operational hospital. So we're ecstatic about it. Um, and, you know, I, in, in municipal politics, I, I'm a nonpartisan um, agent for the, for the, for the city of, of Brampton. And I've criticized the government where it's warranted on paid sick days, on the vaccine rollout. But on this, um, we shouldn't be criticizing. We should be celebrating. The budget was a home run for the residents of Brampton. This was what we were asking for. We were asking for a second hospital. We were asking for a med school. And we got both in this budget. Um, You know, I was ecstatic. Think about this. Uh, A hospital and a med school, um, it's it's just great news. And and, and I'm not going to engage in any partisan games trying to criticize it when, when I really view this as good news
1: well thank you for clarifying that because my uh understanding of what you got was different so thank you for clarifying it um just by the way before we move along what's the timeline on that
2: so um very shortly the premier is going to be in 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 brampton i can't release uh, uh the time uh but uh, very soon he'll be in brampton to share all the details um and i'll be with him at that announcement and uh uh, it's uh, right now we 're hearing it 's going to be a faster timeline than than anyone expects which is uh which is fantastic
1: okay uh moving along to paid sick days, this has been a big issue for you, uh and uh, the government has been very clear that they think it's a a federal responsibility so first of all uh the the federal program was criticized as being very, very hard to access and also taking too long to get money into people's wallets. Um, It was tweaked. Do you have any sense of whether it's working better now?
2: No. So the federal program is inadequate. Um, The province points to the federal program as being adequate. The federal government says they've done their part. And the reality is it's inadequate. And so I hope that The province of ontario and the government of canada can come together and properly provide paid sick days i don't care which level of government provides the mechanism but it's something that will help save lives the current federal program takes about three months to access and when you're living paycheck to paycheck um and you got to pay your rent and put food uh, on the table you can't wait three months it's why no it's why the uptake is so insignificant not to mention the federal benefit is below minimum wage and so if you're someone you know, struggling, struggling to make ends meet. You can't afford to, to have a, a replacement check that is below minimum wage. And, and the proof is in the pudding. You look at the contact tracing data from Peel Public Health, 25% of our COVID cases since August have involved people going into work sick, 25%. And so I know we tell people don't go into work sick, but let's not be naive about it. It happens. And if we had paid sick days, I am sure it would be dramatically different.
1: You know, I have to say it's a bit of a head-scratcher because when it comes to other things, the government has not been behaving in a particularly partisan fashion. So you, you used to be the head of that party. I mean, can you explain the reluctance? I mean, I'm thinking, is it lobbying by, by business? Is it just the cost of it? Or, or is it, in fact, ideological?
2: Well, I've had some frank conversations with with the government. I've spoken to the Premier about it. I've spoken to the Minister of Finance, Peter Bethlenfalvy, uh, about it. My sense is they feel they've um, extended their uh, deficit levels and debt levels as much as they're uh, comfortable with, and they want the federal government to uh, make this a financial commitment. Um, but what I don't like is I don't like hearing both levels of government saying the existing benefits are adequate because they're not. And I see that on the ground. And so what would be more helpful, um, would be if the premier said, listen, I understand the system's broken. Um, and I'm going to be talking to my friend, Christopher Freeland about it. And we're going to try to come up with a solution. But when each government puts their head in the sand and says everything is fine, um, I find that, uh, frustrating. Are,
1: are you still hopeful of getting some action on it?
2: Well, we haven't had much uh, progress on this at all, and and frankly, if we were going to get progress, it would have been in the budget. And so, uh, you know, I'm not optimistic unless it shows up in the federal budget. Um, having said that, you know, we're we're at vaccine rollout time. You know, ho- hopefully, um, we're in a position six months from now where you know we've we've got through this pandemic, and so where are paid sick days would would have been really helpful is is right now.
1: Yeah,
2: and and, and that's not happening.
1: Uh. To the vaccine rollout, uh, both you and Bonnie Crombie have expressed real disappointment that you weren't on the list for the pharmacy pilot project. Did you get any explanation for that?
2: Yeah, so I I was uh, really angry about that because Peel's the highest positivity rate in the province. The notion we wouldn't be on the pharmacy rollout was bewildering. You know, when you go to a fire department and they're sending fire trucks to a fire, they send it to the house that has a fire. They're not going to send it down the street where there's no fire. And the hot spots are where we need the fire extinguishers. The vaccine are fire extinguishers. And the notion that we'd be sending the pharmacy pilot project to Kingston, which is open, they don't have outbreaks, um, just was a real head-scratcher. But give the government credit. You know, I was quite angry about this on the weekend, and by Monday they announced that uh, Peel would be join the, uh, joining the the, the pharmacy uh, rollout as soon as the next shipment of AstraZeneca arrives, which could be any day now. So Hopefully, that's good news. but I would say my larger problem with the vaccine rollout right now is: first of all, Canada has done a miserable job at getting vaccine supply; we're fifty fourth in the world. The, the last time I checked, that's not something to be proud of. But on a provincial level, you know, I, frankly, I've got criticisms of the, of the provincial government as well. Peel Region has ten percent of the population. 20% of the vaccine, sorry, 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 20% of the COVID cases. And as of today, we've only had 7% of the vaccines. So we have less than our per capita uh, average. Is that um, like
1: a counting error or do you think it's deliberate?
2: I think someone's made a mistake um, it, it, with the vaccine rollout and uh, we're being told it's going to be rectified. But I'm watching this number every day. Every day I look at the vaccine numbers for Peel, I look at our population, I look at our COVID cases. And, you know, I share that data with the provincial government every day. 20% of the COVID cases in Peel region for the entire province, 10% of the population, 7% of the vaccines as of today.
1: And, uh, you know, uh, another thing that I have to say, I think the authorities were quick to recognize, was with the rollout for people over 80, a lot of people fell through the cracks. And they've started to address it. There was money in the budget to give Give, and, and the finance minister is saying, we'll literally give you a lift with not much sense of how that's going to happen. In Toronto, there are a number of services that are ramping up. Uh, what's the situation with people who have a hard time, older people accessing vaccines and, and uh, what is being done to help them out?
2: So there is a real effort to make sure that seniors who are mobile challenged uh, that we can reach them and protect them and so i know in peel region i, I look at a senior's home hall in christian homes where a lot of the seniors are, mo- are mobile challenged we sent um peel public health workers there to do the vaccinations um and so where they're in congregate care settings it's a little bit easier because you can get to senior residences where a lot of seniors live together um where it's more challenging is when they're living on their own but uh, i'm told from peel public health they're they're looking at uh, um, how they can uh, get to individual seniors as well as not 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 just a group of seniors so it's something that's being worked on and and i believe there'll be provincial financial assistance for it as well
1: yeah i mean it just seems to be so all over the map with with very different uh, approaches and very different capabilities from one public health unit to another
2: yeah and you know what i actually have a level of appreciation for why this is challenging this is uncharted territory we've never been in a pandemic in the last hundred years so you know i, I give um, the government a little bit of discretion on this as we identify problems we, we, we try to fix them um, and they seem to be very cooperative on this right now.
1: Okay uh, just a, a couple of, of things here and there uh, the the government has increased the child benefit there's been some criticism of that because it's not means tested uh, what do you think about that and, and about you know whatever other measures there are also for small business?
2: You know the help for families and the help for small businesses is welcome. You know my more focused interest in the budget was on particularly the aspects that related to uh, to, to Brampton, but um, you know I, I think all families, regardless uh, whether they're low income or middle uh, middle income, uh, were challenged by um, the last year, and so I'm sure the help for families would be appreciated, uh, and and the help for small businesses is desperately needed. You know there's a lot of small businesses that are on the verge of of bankruptcy. So I welcome those uh, budget announcements.
1: Okay. Anything else, Mayor Brown?
2: No, just stay safe, stay healthy. Uh, we need Zoomer Radio.
1: Okay. Thank you, Mayor Brown. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we are going to turn to those small and other businesses right now. And they were anxiously awaiting the government's blueprint for economic recovery. There will be a second installment of the Ontario small business support grant. That's the same size as the first. It's a minimum of 10,000, a maximum of 20,000 for eligible businesses. So the question, of course, is how far will that go to keeping the doors open and keeping employees on the payroll uh let me give the numbers out if you want to call and weigh in on any of this 4163600740 toll-free 866 740 And I'd like to bring in Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, as well as two businesses that we've been checking in with periodically, Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen here in Liberty Village, and Madeline Amson, the manager of Bang Hair Salon. Welcome, everybody. Great pleasure. Hello. 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 Okay, let us begin with Rocco. Uh, From the view of 10,000 feet, uh, what do you think of the measures in the budget?
3: Well, extremely welcome. Uh, One, that uh, the government understood that the help couldn't come in the form of more loans uh, because, quite frankly, after a year of what we've gone through, uh, most small, medium-sized businesses are up to their eyeballs in in debt, so cash was necessary. Number two, uh, that uh, that they've doubled down on it, uh, so that those who applied for the first tranche of either ten or twenty thousand will automatically get uh, the second tranche at the same at the same amount, recognizing the fact that this crisis isn't over, uh, and so the one time was not sufficient to keep everything going. And, 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 and also that it's not like they have uh, all day long to fill in forms. So not having to do that again. Great. Third thing they did was create a parallel uh, program to expand the qualification to include a lot of businesses in the tourism sector that were not included in the first um, a set of qualifications uh, of the, uh, of the program. So hugely helpful um, on, uh, on that front alone. It's, it's not the uh, it's not the end of the, uh, the answer. It's not the complete answer. The, the, the rent uh, subsidy program, the wage subsidy programs at the federal level, all important. So it's, it, but it's an important piece uh, and they've added, some additional things including now, including small, medium-sized businesses in their rapid testing program. So you can can sign up and receive free um, rapid tests for a period of eight weeks where you can test your employees two to three times a week and help us manage the reopening in the safest possible way to keep things open as much as possible while giving people uh, assurance that uh, that their health is being uh, taken care of.
1: Okay, uh, Madeline Amson, uh, you have a hair salon and uh, you've been closed for a lot of the time and, and presumably you still are. Um, what do you think of the measures in the budget?
4: Uh, you know, I definitely echo that sentiment. It's a very welcomed proposal and being able to have that financial aid for us is really, really helpful. Um, especially not having to go through all of that paperwork again all of those online forms, because it definitely does take up quite a bit of time. Um, and again, we're just lucky to still have a small business uh, for which we can use the aid.
1: and And how are you how are you managing? How are you hanging on? Uh, you know, uh
4: banks along, we've really amped up our online presence during the second lockdown. We're engaging more on social media as well as opening a full online shop for our retail products and just doing the colour kit for our clients. We've been doing pretty well with that. But again, once we reopen, it's, it's going to pretty much be starting from square one.
1: Hmm. Donna Dewar, hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you, Libby. <laughs> well, we've been talking throughout this where you uh, had to pivot to takeout. Um, how are you doing and, and what do you think of these budget measures?
5: Well, first of all, we're, we're doing fine. We're still in business and, and grateful for that. Uh, secondly, the budget measures, uh, again, I, I echo sentiments of Rocco. Um, very welcome news for the most part. Um, a little disappointed that the, um, we didn't get the pricing that we'd like to see happening with the LCBO, you know, restaurant operators and, and bar operators have been for, for many, many years looking to get wholesale pricing for our alcoholic beverages that we resell in our, our establishments. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, that the government has demonstrated whether they wanted to or not, that they are capable of being flexible and, and pivoting on their part and that the repercussions are positive ones, not negative ones. So, you know, um, overall, yes, I'm I'm glad they haven 't forgotten about us, but I still think there's work to be done
1: hmm rocco uh do you have a number of uh you know we keep hearing uh dire numbers of of businesses that probably will never be able to reopen. I look around here in liberty village and and the uh, you know the the neighborhood near where I live, and uh, every week, I see more empty storefronts with for lease signs. Yeah. Uh,
3: well, look at even by the end of of this past September in Ontario alone, the number of permanent closures was around thirty thousand, and that has continued since then. And depending on how long this goes, we've seen estimates of upwards of two hundred thousand or more across the the country. And uh, and it is it should be a stark reminder to people. That our small businesses are, are not just places to buy and sell goods. They are our main streets. They're our street culture. They're the people who local charities go to for, uh, for assistance. And so it is important, uh, that the government has recognized that, that look, we've got to help people through who through no fault of their own have been hammered, um, get to the other side of this um, because restarting an economy when you've got those businesses who've been able to keep their heads above water if just uh, is going to be a lot easier a lot faster than allowing the permanent scarring of even more businesses going bankrupt and that's why it's so important and i was delighted to hear the comments around you know pivoting on the on the digital side because another big piece of this budget uh, is the single largest uh, public investment in expansion of broadband um, into underserved uh, regions uh, because we have seen through this that there is a digital divide, that those businesses who've had access to broadband and have been able to pivot in some cases are doing much better than those who uh, don't have that. So, important supports for right now and some key important investments for future competitiveness and growth. Uh,
1: I'd like to get back to Donna and Madeline. So, uh, first of all, uh, Madeline, how many employees did you have before all this and how many are still on the payroll?
4: Um, So, we have six employees going into this and right now we don't have anybody on payroll, so everyone is, you know, collecting EI or CRB, it's, it's really tough when we're trying to support them as much as we can, um, but that's just, that's just what's had to happen. You know, we've been closed since November 22nd.
1: And, and so all of your work online and mixing the colors, you do all of that yourself? Uh, yes. Uh, I would imagine that's quite the workload, Donna. What about you in terms of employees
5: well we uh, we went into lockdown with uh, fifty five employees on our payroll, and we 're down to fifteen and um, we're working pretty hard, myself included uh, you know we 're in here sometimes seven days a week. Uh, the team has been amazing. And I'm, I'm very grateful to them, but uh, we're our, our we, we've just described it as our own little tribe. We're all looking out for each other. We're, we're protecting the business and doing everything we can to make sure we come out on uh, the other side. But yeah, we have lost a huge, huge portion of our, of our workforce. And our, one of our concerns is when we do get to open up, and I know patios are, are starting to open up is getting people back into work and are they, do they want to come back? Do they feel safe? Do we retrain? Do we bring in new team members? And we, we have been in touch with our team from the, from the very beginning, but we, we know we're going to lose a lot of them. We have lost some of them to other industries or, or for whatever reason they are going to leave our industry. So we, we have, we, we have
1: some challenges in the reopening as well. Do, do you, because I already saw one, at least one patio on, you know, my lunchtime walk. Uh, do you have a patio space? We do have a patio space. And uh, a couple of weeks
5: ago, as we've done, uh, we call our plan the reopening, the re-re-reopening. We're not even sure which reopening we're at, but we, we, we chose April the 14th. About a month and a half ago, uh, just making an assumption, making a guess that this is when we might see patios open. We, we misjudged, uh, they opened with 12 hours notice and, um, you know, everybody's scrambling to get open, but we, we took the position of we're not ready. The staff is not ready. Uh, there are some protocols that we, we have been working on that we want to have in place. And we are going to stay stay the course. I do think the weather will change again anyway.
1: anyway. Well, it, oh, come on, March. It's March in yeah. Canada, people. Course, so we get Canada. a couple of good days and everyone goes nuts. I know. But, and we've, I've been in the restaurant business long enough to know, Libby, that that happens every year.
5: Uh, as soon as the nice weather hits in March, everyone's out. Uh, phoning us saying is your patio open
1: well i know Uh, i I know my my husband couldn't couldn't wait to get out on a patio uh and and maybe it'll (laughs) be a while we have a nice backyard and and there have been years when we can eat outside for a couple of days in march and then not until the end of may that's correct yeah yeah, so well, we
5: don't. I can't predict the weather, but uh, today is a beautiful day, and if if there are patios open, I, I hope that people are taking advantage and going to to visit their local restaurants.
1: Um, Rocco, uh, so I think that um, th- that the restaurant reopening, if if last year is is any indication, uh, that sector should be okay. Do you agree?
3: Well look it, it varies because not all restaurants have access to uh to patios and as well as you look at um at the downtowns and the office tower areas. Yeah. If those office towers don't get refilled, then the businesses that feed off them in the path and just outside, really it's very difficult for them to decide to uh to reopen because they won't have the same uh the same foot traffic. I mean not everyone has, uh, Mildred's Temple brand and, and that great, um, that great equity. But the, the point that was made was, was just so important. You need notice. Uh, you, you can't open and close businesses on a dime because people have to restock. They have to call back, uh, staff. They have to plan out, uh, shifts. And so the more consistent that we can be, the more clarity and notice uh, government and public health. We know it's difficult, but really uh, everyone is sacrificing so much. And the more notice, the more consistency, uh, the more likelihood that, that we, can, we can keep more businesses going and alive. And you know, while the, the, um, the wholesale alcohol price issue is, is certainly an important one, the other one is that they did on an emergency basis allow uh, during the crisis restaurants, licensed restaurants to be able to include alcohol in deliveries and in takeouts that they weren't before. And we certainly hope that that's a measure that stays because it's an important source of margin for these businesses that will be doing everything they can to um, to both stay in business and come back strong.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Rocco, in terms of employees, do you have a number, uh, you know, so even businesses that come back may not come back at a full complement. Uh, do you have a, a job loss estimate?
3: Well, we've, we've seen, uh, you know, we've seen the the impact. There are uh, literally hundreds of thousands of uh, of employees who've not been able to come back. And if you could tell me the exact day of when uh the pandemic ends and consumers you know get their 100% confidence back to be um, everywhere then i could tell you how quickly we get back to uh to full employment but the reality is that different sectors will come back uh at at different rates how quickly will people uh be willing to go back into live music venues um You know, for instance, with the with the with the the crowding that occurs in that there there will be some, you know, there's clearly pent up demand. I mean, you saw at the moment the the moment a patio opens up, I mean, that you can't get a reservation.
1: Yeah. And they go
3: go, (laughs) and they go there for sure. So there is there is pent up. And I do you know, do always remind people that after the last global pandemic, the so-called Spanish flu of, of, of 1918, we got the roaring 20s. So, um, it, you know, uh, our hope is accelerate that, uh, that vaccination rollout, get those vaccines into people's arms, um, and we can get back to normalcy.
1: Okay. Uh, Madeline, Nansen, 20 seconds. What would you like to leave us with? Um, we're just,
4: you know, trying to be hopeful for the future and hopefully things can go back to somewhat normal very soon. Just continuing to shop small, shop local. It's a trend that we want to still see going strong. And just good luck to all of my fellow small businesses.
5: Donna Dewar? I I would say exactly the same thing. Um, and you know, I can hardly wait for Madeline's shop to open up because my hair desperately needs. <laughs>
1: Oh, God, (laughs) but I I had so much trouble with my
5: bangs this morning. (laughs) I mean, these are things we we so take for granted. uh, They're everyday parts of our life, and we, we don't realize how important they are until we don't have them.
1: Okay. Uh, that is all the time we have on this. And, and best of luck to you all. We are all hoping that uh, we're, we're looking forward to a return to our streetscapes with fully functioning small business. Thank you so much, Madeline Ampson, Donna Dewar, and Rocco Rossi. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very Bye much. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a short break and when we return, long-term care, lots of disappointment with what we saw in the budget for the hardest hit sector when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to 1. Oh, no. Fight Back with Libby Snyder on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. What about long-term care where 3,764 of our elders in Ontario have lost their lives? Where there was more devastation in the second wave than in the first, despite the government's province, to put a, quote, iron ring around the sector. The government has announced and reannounced their long-term plan to ramp up to four hours of daily care per resident. They're promising to spend $4.9 billion on this. Uh, that is over four years. So this year's contribution will only be 10% of that. And most of the spend, frankly, is slated for a time after the next election. So where does that leave us? Let me give the numbers out again. Uh, this is a big issue for our audience, for themselves, their parents. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hi, Bill. Hi, Libby. So... Uh, Overall, what do you make of the provisions for long-term care?
3: Uh, we're really disappointed. Uh, you took the words out of my mouth when you talked about so little. They they promised uh, uh, almost $5 billion, but in the first year only using 10% of it. How does that make uh, sense? If, uh, if, if your house was on fire now, would you ask for only 10%? of the fire department to, to come. It needs fixing now. People are still dying and to not put uh, the major amount of the money in up front and to spread it over uh, four years. I, I don't know how they can justify that. It just doesn't make sense to carp to its members.
1: Yeah, well, uh, I heard some of the justification, and they're they're going very hard on on the fact that they're starting this training program. They want to hire twenty seven thousand personal support workers, so they've started this training program, and they seem to be hanging their hat on that.
3: Well, I hope they do better. You recall call that early, early in the game, much earlier than Ontario, Quebec tried to do something similar in terms of, of hiring. And they, I think they raised less than 50% of the, the number that they w- went after. And if you look at the number of uh, long-term care homes, the number of uh, employees, 27,000, even if they reach that uh, amount, is uh, is a drop in the... In the bucket, what all they're doing is tweaking what they've already been doing. And what we need is to rebuild this whole system from the beginning, and we need to start doing it now.
1: Well, uh, the other thing they're talking about, I mean, some of that money uh, is going to rebuilding homes. I mean, it, it's a hodgepodge of how they're being financed. Uh, and it does take time to rebuild homes on, on a newer model so that people don't have to share rooms with three other people and, and, stuff like that well, but it it certainly doesn't seem like a major retool of of the whole you know the whole the whole no. plan
3: no it do- doesn't at all and and rebuilding homes on the same scale and just uh, increasing the size of the space in rooms so uh, so that only one person will will live in is not is not the answer to getting to the basic issues around uh, long-term care, where we continue to put money into housing our uh, loved ones in large, old-fashioned hospital-like uh, facilities, when that's not the way the rest of the way I mean, the rest of the world is treating their their older residents. They're they're not putting them in. They're not rebuilding that kind of building. They're creating new uh, opportunities for people to live much more comfortably and much more ably, and we know, and it's not, once again, it's not rocket science, how to do it, other countries are already doing. It. We don't need task forces, we don't need to set up studies, we just need to follow those patterns that are working so well in other places.
1: Hmm. Uh, what about inspections? I didn't see anything okay. devoted to Nothing. ramping up inspections.
3: Nothing about inspections. So here we have an inspection system where we know uh, inspections were being done by phone. They were being done by mail. There was self-inspection by the uh, facilities, and we've heard nothing about that uh, being changed. Nothing about increasing the responsibility of of the inspectors. Nothing about following through uh, with the forcing uh, facilities to make the changes that are uh, that are necessary. They seem to have completely ignored it. You know, it kind of comes back, and not kind of, it does come back to our whole point about the Ministry of Long Term Care is not doing its job. The bureaucrats aren't doing their job. The pre- the Premier is not telling them that they should do their job. And the only thing we can do is that say, I guess we've got to get rid of the minister because she's the only public person that we can really get to. But frankly, the whole department is is doing nothing. No word from them. At all, no no support, no actual action. Why do we even have a ministry of long-term care? Is it just a way of getting that subject away from the Department of Health so they don't have to worry about it and, and take the plaque for it? Uh-
1: Another issue, a related issue that has come to the fore. And this, you know, again, has me scratching my head. So on the one hand, when they were finally getting to the vaccine rollout in long-term care, the people who work there were actually prioritized over the residents themselves. But now it turns out that a large percentage of them haven't, uh, have, have opted against being vaccinated. And yeah, the result is that there are still outbreaks in homes, and uh, in some places the residents are, even though they've been fully vaccinated, in some cases they're being confined to yeah, avoid it, getting. It it it's, it uh, frankly boggles the mind.
3: It it absolutely does, and I don't know how anybody can can answer that. And certainly, you know, CARP has always been. Fully supported of choice. We want our members, people, want to be able to make their own health choices. But when it comes to a choice that affects other people, if you're going to work in a long-term care home where you have the most at-risk people, then we believe you you should be required to either be vaccinated or leave the leave leave the job. Uh, that there, there should not be a choice at that point because it can affect so many other people. We saw what happened. When, uh, limited numbers of, of, people from the outside brought the COVID night into those homes that we saw the tremendous, ter- terrible death toll, uh, that that took. So, so if they want to make that choice, fine, people can, you know, people, we're allowed to make stupid choices. Uh, if they want to make that choice, fine, but then they should not have, uh, jobs and there, there, there needs to be uh, a regulation and, and, the, and this is something that has to come from the government, not from the homes. If you're going to work at a long-term care home, you have to take the COVID vaccine.
1: Well, the minister, Merrilee Fullerton, said she has no plans for that. And interestingly enough, uh, I reported a few weeks ago that uh, one of the largest nursing home chains in Britain made that requirement. And, and as far as I could tell, there was, there was not even a peeps of opposition.
3: No, I think there, there's there's great support. And I know, I know that the... In the surveys that CARP has done about vaccines among uh, its members, there's full uh, uh, full support. We're it's over 85 percent in the last survey of, of the need for everybody to get a vaccine if they're if they're going to be in contact with uh, older vulnerable uh, people. We're not we're not talking about people who are even just out in the community. We are talking about people who are not only close by but giving uh, giving close service, medical help, touching them, moving them, helping them, uh, they have, and they're doing it to our most vulnerable at risk people. How could anybody con- with any conscience, uh, allow themselves to risk taking a vaccine into those people?
1: Uh, anything you want to leave us with in 20 seconds?
3: It's tw- Well, only that, you know, the big other big thing that they've, they've missed is, uh, uh, so many uh, citizens are now giving care to their older uh, loved ones in their home or where else. We're very much concerned about child care, although I understand they're not getting as much support even for that as they want. But where's the support for families who have to give care to their older loved ones, too? You've asked for that over and over. It still hasn't been
1: answered. OK, thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder. Thank you. Right. We are going to take another break. And on the other side of it, uh, Toronto's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Eileen Davila.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio.
1: Welcome back. Here in Toronto, a fourth mass vaccination site has opened as the rollout continues. This, as the number of cases keeps going up, and there is no question that we are now in a third wave. I'd like to welcome Dr. Eileen DeVilla, Medical Officer of Health for the City of Toronto. Welcome. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, this is the your first time on Fight Back, the first of many, I hope. I hope so, too. Great. Um, so our situation has been described as a race between the virus and the rollout of the vaccine. So who's ahead in that in that race right now?
6: Well, you know, Libby, I would say this. It's actually up to us how this race plays out. Uh, unfortunately, right now, it looks like the, the variants have a bit of an edge. Uh, part of our challenge has been that vaccine supply has been rather restricted over the past several weeks and we are hoping to see some improvements in that. But in the meantime, there is still quite a bit of power that we all hold given how much we've learned about uh, you know COVID-19 over the course of the past several months. And we know what it takes to actually reduce transmission. It comes down to distance, distance and distance. And for those instances where distance cannot be maintained, making sure that you're, you know, wearing, using a well-fitting mask, um, you know, and practicing good infection prevention and control, good personal protection measures, so that you limit the likelihood of spread or, um, you know, of disease from one person to the next.
1: Last week, uh, you finally started vaccinating uh, seniors over 80 in in the mass sites. And it didn't take long before uh, you and other authorities realized that there were quite a large number of them falling through the cracks because not just the rate of, of, of the vaccinations, but also the signups uh, were dwindling. So I know that there have been a number of measures to try to help those people. What is in place? And, and first of all, were you surprised that that happened?
6: Well, you know, I I think when we're talking about the largest immunization campaign in the history uh, of the country, uh, I don't know that anyone really knows what to expect. Um, You know, we do have some experience, obviously, with some large-scale campaigns, but nothing quite like this. So we do know from influenza seasons that generally the uptake is is, you know, in the range of about 30-ish, you know, maybe 35% of adults generally take up vaccines. And we know that that, that was something that we were thinking about
1: and that we were aware of.
6: Right. But so, for seniors,
1: know, it's much, much, much higher.
6: It, it is in general, for sure. Um, But we're also talking about a new vaccine and um the requirement to actually have to venture out to go and get that vaccine in a, in a, in a time when there is some disease transmission happening. So I think there are a number of factors at play here. But, you know, the mark of a true professional practice is to see, OK, what's happening in the community? How are our efforts being received? And what can we do to adjust, uh, given what we're seeing uh, in terms of uptake and, and what concerns, if any, people are actually expressing? So what we've done overall as a city is you know, certainly tried to communicate as much as possible to have uh, people be aware that the opportunity exists, where the opportunity can be taken up, and tried to facilitate as much as possible uh, access to those uh, vaccination opportunities. As well, we're working with uh, staff at Toronto Public Library. They're calling their clients who are now eligible uh, to receive vaccine and encouraging um, their participation in vaccination efforts and answering some questions around that. We've seen the city put forward a transportation equity plan to support those for whom accessibility or mobility is a challenge. And I think these are just a few of the things that are out there. There are still more opportunities that we will explore, depending on what we actually see on the ground.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that some of these issues are beyond your purview. There are people who want to get it done in their doctor's offices because that's where they feel safe. There's no supply there. And there's also an issue of mobile clinics, which I guess, are they mostly a provincial responsibility? No, so mobile clinics are something that
6: certainly we will approach as a city, at least in part. Right now, the focus, uh, you know, at the Toronto Public Health and city efforts is on mass immunization clinics and getting those up and running. Uh, as we get those up and running then we'll have more capacity to think about mobile clinics again what we're trying to do is provide vaccines in the most efficient way possible and that really is through mass immunization clinics do you have- that being said we're we're not alone in this we're working with healthcare partners who are actually doing uh, you know what i would characterize as mobile clinics um and they have done uh, clinics for example that was how long-term care homes and retirement homes have received their vaccination and they're continuing to do uh, other mobile clinics in keeping with the provincial framework on prioritization. And And do you have an ETA? Uh, well, certainly we're hoping to have our mass immunization clinics, you know, up and running by early April. And once those are up and running, we're then, you know, with a little more capacity to, to plan, and to understand where mobile clinics might actually be most beneficial so that we can direct the resources in the most efficient and effective way.
1: Um, I mean, one of the problems is that the whole thing is so siloed. I mean, I can tell you that I follow this very closely and I'm confused. I mean, uh, the the West Lynn uh, has started to tell people that they will get injections from paramedics, but they don't know when. On the East side, where it's not a Lynn, it's a health team working with Michael Guerin Hospital. They've been doing it for weeks. I mean, it's just, um, you know, the navigation of this is, is just punishing. You
6: know, there, there's no question that the way in which health Care in particular is organized is quite different from one part of the city to the next. Uh, This is certainly one of the lessons learned over the course of the pandemic, and one on which I think, um, you know, I'm hoping that we'll see improvement having learned these lessons over the course of the past several months. That being said, I think that what people can rely on is that there is really a strong sense of commitment across public health and certainly across our healthcare partners all around the city. We do actually speak with each other. We have a health sector um, uh, leadership table where the efforts across the city of all the health care providers um, is actually brought together so that we can help each other. It need not be so restricted. And in fact, we're seeing a lot of collaboration where, um, for example, teams, as you said, from the west or the east are going to the opposite end of the city to help out people to make sure that... Uh, we're, we're covering off um, those prioritized populations in accordance with the provincial framework as quickly as possible.
1: Um I, I want to turn to uh, something that has been a growing criticism from advocates. Uh, and that is, you know, when we first started to hear about vaccinations, Teresa Tam, the chief medical officer, said, let's do it by age. In some provinces, they're sticking to that. Let's do it by age. Those are the people most at risk. What seems to have happened here is that every other group, with real concerns that has advocates or lobbyists sort of got into that priority group and every it seems that 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 has put older people at a disadvantage. And, and even when it comes to health care workers who were prioritized over, say, long term care residents who got their shots first. Well, now long term care residents, even if they're vaccinated, are basically imprisoned because n- not a lot of health care workers don't even want the vaccine.
6: Yeah, lots of challenges for sure in the environment. But I I would say this, when I look at the way the prioritization uh, framework was implemented, in fact, uh, the vast majority of those who were in phase one, right, and what's been done over time over the last several weeks is in keeping with the notion that those who are at greatest risk are receiving the vaccine, Certainly, we've seen the benefit within the context of our long-term care homes and retirement homes. There was a lot of COVID-19 activity happening there um, you know, towards the end of last year and early uh, in January of this year. As vaccine became um, deployed in those settings and, and taken up by residents, the situation has dramatically improved. And I'm so thankful for that because I think it's really, really important um that those populations were protected. And I'm glad that they have that protection. With respect to healthcare workers, they are indeed younger. You're you're absolutely right. In general, there are a working population um, working in acute care. Um, and that notion was around making sure that those healthcare resources were available. There were some real concerns around outbreaks happening within acute care settings, hospitals and the like, and that was meant to protect all of us. Uh, because without healthcare workers able to actually provide those necessary services, whether we're young or old, if we had medical uh, care that uh, required hospitalization, um, the resources were actually under extreme stress. So as we move forward, trying to make sure that those who want to get vaccine. Uh, going down in, in uh, you know, sort of chronological order from the oldest to the youngest and with the other prioritization categories as described in the framework, we're making those opportunities available. And I would just encourage people, as you know, if when your turn comes up, please take advantage of it. It is, you know, the best thing you can do in addition to those self-protection measures, the best thing you can do is to get that vaccine when it's your turn.
1: Uh so I'm 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 assuming you don't you don't regret that it wasn't a simpler, let's go by age. You don't think that would have been more efficient?
6: You know, Libby, I would say this. Uh, I think that uh, you know, as a, a professional in public health, I'm always evaluating and reevaluating what it is that we're doing. Uh, and if I didn't look for opportunities for improvement, then I wouldn't be doing my job as a medical officer of health.
1: We only have a few uh, seconds left. Uh, we're going into a season of holidays. It's Passover this weekend. Uh, it's a holiday that is usually celebrated around a crowded table. Uh, there are a lot of grandparents who actually have been vaccinating, uh, vaccinated, uh, at least with one shot. What can they do?
6: You know, at this point in time, I I think the the safest course of action is to still try to maintain that limited interaction as much as possible. I know that there are resources that are out there. I know my colleagues down in the United States have federal guidance that's been provided on what best to do. Uh, And when they're talking about um, vaccinated individuals, they're talking about people who've had both doses of a two-dose vaccine regime. Uh, We are awaiting word. Uh, This is the kind of guidance that should be provided um, through higher authorities, whether it's our federal counterparts, similar to what the CDC and the states did, or at least our provincial counterparts. I'll look forward to hearing their advice, um, particularly given that we have a number of people in our population who have received one dose of a two-dose regime. So the science is still very much evolving on this situation. So my mind, you know, best to be
1: uh, safe
6: rather than sorry.
1: Okay, Dr. Eileen Devilla, thank you so much. Thank you. That is all the time we have for today. But before we leave, um, I will be off for a few days for the holiday. I'll be back here in the middle of next week. In the meantime, happy Passover to those who celebrate. Easter is coming up next weekend. And let's hope this beautiful weather continues.